Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you're new to the show, I just want to say thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention and lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That, of course, is your time. I promise today's episode is a double dose of ROI on that investment. The entrepreneur I get a pleasure to finally interview at long last is none other than Mike Hall, one of the three co-founders of a little company out of Southern California that has dominated our industry for 22 years called Borrego Solar. Borrego since has spun out a resi business, spawned uh, New Leaf Energy, and lately uh, you might have heard of Anza, which we'll learn more about today. Mike has been the CEO since around 2009, and he, his brother, and Chris Anderson have led this company through all the ups and downs of what we call the solar coaster. Stick around. You don't want to miss this story. By the way, I hope that you're subscribed to the show. It's super easy to do right there in Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just click subscribe. And if you stick around all the way through and you find this incredibly interesting, do me a favor. Just hit that five stars and leave a quick review of how it left a positive impression on you so that others can find the show just like you did and grow with us in their clean energy career. We've got more than 600 clean energy founder stories and startup advice just like what you're about to hear. You can listen to them in the podcast player or go to mysuncast.com and check out the back catalog. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I almost feel for most here in the Americas that you need no introduction to today's guest, Mike Hall, uh, but I gave a brief introduction at the beginning. If you're unfamiliar, Borrego started back in late 2001, 22-year-old company. I've competed against them, sold to them, worked with them, and just generally admired this company for the better part of two decades, uh, including their leadership. I've worked and uh, known these guys for most all of my career and, uh, and really can state emphatically that they're in the, in the canon, in the pantheon of U.S. solar companies. Borrego uh, deserves a spot as one of those companies that, that categorically move the industry forward. Today, you're going to hear the background. And, and how Mike came to be the, the leader of this business, co-founder with his brother. I could go on and on, but instead I'll let the man himself speak to the topic. Mike, welcome to the Suncast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nico. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, yeah man, long time coming. Thanks to Danielle and Jackie and the rest of the team for helping coordinate. Uh, I remember when we did the pre-interview, gosh, uh, I'm going to say a long time ago instead of giving the exact time. You, uh, you answered the question, how many of these do you do a year? You said one or two. And so I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored to fall in that category. Thank you so much. I truly, I truly um, appreciate it. 
the last time we stood on a virtual stage together was an actual virtual stage. Uh, we were uh, we were both avatars in a literal 3D virtual world. Um, so it's good to have you. It's good to have you back on the Suncast stage, man. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, I always start with a favorite quote. And actually, I think that you will totally appreciate this one because it's from none other than Sir Richard Branson. Train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so they don't want to. Ah, that's a good one. I've heard that one before. I didn't I didn't know it was Richard Branson. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. yeah. That one, that one, uh, yeah. So that one definitely has a great meaning to me. I've only ever worked with a small uh, team, a small company. Um, and the nature of small business in cash flow is that you kind of always have people cycling in and out. Um, but um, you've had the opportunity to grow into sort of a big business. I really like that quote. But one of the things about having running a business for 21 years is that at some point, you know, people, some people will leave. Right. That's right. And I, but one of the greatest satisfactions I've had professionally is the number of people who have left Borrego on really good terms who are really great friends who've gone off and started other successful companies. Um, and there are a number of them. And so, um, I don't know that that quote actually made me think of the people who have left and done great I things. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to dig deeper now. Who, who comes to mind? I, obviously like there probably are many that you won't, we won't draw immediately and I'm not looking for an exhaustive list, but I'm curious if you, if some, who are the folks that immediately pop to mind? Sure. Yeah. I think we've had, um, in particular in our development business, um, we were really successful there. And so I think a lot of people learned a lot at Borrego. So mm -hmm. there's a company called Renewable Properties based in San Francisco that's doing kind of mid-scale project development. And Aaron Halimi was a developer at Borrego. And um, there's another a number of ex-Borreginos there, including Brian Von Moose, who's an exec there who I worked with for more than 10 years. Um, there's a woman named Emily Flanagan, who was uh, one of our top developers, and she started, I believe her company's called Palmer Energy out in New York. An incredible developer named Alex Farkas, who was one of the Farkas brothers who actually, they might be an interesting interview at some point. They're yeah. three brothers who have done really well in solar, um, and he's he's built a really great business in Illinois doing community solar projects. So there's just a few that come to mind. There's some others too, but, um, but it's great. I mean, it's, uh, and I'm in touch with all of them and friends with all of them and, um, you know, wish them all success. And, you know, it's great when they come back and, uh, I get to talk to them and we talk about things that we did together at Borrego and how those influenced their businesses. So mm. it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I'll definitely have, uh, Halimi on, I have him saved in my contacts and there was a period, <clears throat> I remember I'll, I remember meeting him at the Borrego party at SPI in Vegas years and years and years ago, like 2009, 2010. And I saved his phone number in my phone and it's just been there forever. And at one point I was like, wait a minute, was Aaron Halimi the founder? Yeah, it's, it's confusing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, there was a period where I, I remember uh, he called me and I was like, oh my God, the founder of Borrego is calling me. And then that was like the clarifying moment. Like, oh, right. He, he works for Borrego. Yeah. Um, but he's had he's had a wonderful uh, run yeah, so they're far doing with renewable properties and yeah, doing great. great. Yeah. Um, Tor keeps on me to to bring oh, right. Aaron on. Aaron, I promise I'm going to bring you on, brother. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And I definitely want to meet the Farkas brothers. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, is there a quote that stands out for you? I um, I love just getting inspiration from how I find you know the wisdom that is passed down in quotes really does provide guidance and uh, and solace in times. 
Yeah, I mean, sure, since um, maybe just piggybacking on the Richard Branson quote, um, I really like uh, Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my favorites. I think we kind of just accidentally um, built Borrego on that principle before I'd even heard the quote. But Mm. then as I kind of matured (laughs) as a a business leader, I just learned how important it was. Um, Yeah. And in the early days, how culture kind of just comes um, because you can, you're talking to everybody every day because you're really small. And, you know, back in the days when we were all in an office, you were all together. But then when you get bigger, you actually have to do things to maintain, promote, or even continue to evolve the culture. But, you know, you can have the best strategy in the world. And if people aren't doing the things you want to do when you're not want them to do and behave the way you want them to behave when you're not in the room, you're not going to be successful. Your strategy is mediocre, but everybody's aligned in uh, how they work and how they communicate, then you'll, you'll be successful anyway. Well said. So Mike, you have, as I mentioned, spawned a few businesses most recently and notably Anza. Uh, so let's look through the, in, through the lens of Anza. We'll get into the whole origin and backstory uh, as much as you can in an hour on Borrego. But how would you describe the problem at a macro level that you created Anza to solve? Yeah. So the way we see it, we think that the whole way procurement is being done for solar modules and batteries is is really broken. And that pretty much all of the IPPs and the EPCs are out there in the market. um, They're typically making the wrong decision. And so that's what we're trying to help with. We're trying to help them to get to the right decision for their project from a financial and a risk perspective in an efficient way. And um, we've done a lot of things that we think can really help. Yeah. So with that in mind, would you then introduce me to Anza uh, and how you're going to solve the problem you've just enunciated? Yeah, sure. So first, I think if people are listening and they want to get a feel for it, I just really encourage you to go to the site and you can get a log into the app. And um, maybe just walking through what that experience is will tell you a little bit about how we're approaching the problem. So if you go into the Anza app, you can enter some really basic information about your project. And what you will get in seconds is 20 different solar, more than 20 solar module options available for your project. And you'll get a whole bunch of intelligence about them. And so... yeah. So, so for for folks that are, are listening, it's AnzaRenewables.com, yep. which if you go, when you go there, it says the new digital marketplace for large-scale solar and battery procurement. That's how you know. It's not the coffee place. It's the renewables place. Oh, I didn't even know there was a coffee place. Uh, there is? Yeah. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. So um, what, if, you, if you were to go do that, you'd quickly see what it is we're doing that's different from what anybody else is doing with regards to procurement. And first is we have aggregated this data set that covers more than 90% of the U.S. market. And so we have pricing, availability, and product data for like that's close to real time. It's getting updated on a weekly or semi-weekly basis for all the products available in the market. Um, and you can see that in seconds. And then the second thing we're doing is we've invested in this technology that we actually developed out of algorithms that we had at Borrego that yeah. allows us to rapidly and in parallel compare not just the price and availability of the modules, but the total value of the modules. And we can calculate differences in energy production and revenue from that energy based on a project-specific location, 
but also we have some tools to calculate differences in EPC cost. And so we, we can smash that all together and give customers a ranking that not just shows them differences in price, which we think is how most people are shopping today, which is wrong. They shop based on nameplate dollar per watt, but actually on total lifetime value. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a really cool technology. It's a very different approach, but ultimately um, it allows customers, we think, to make better decisions for their project and get to the module that's actually best for them financially and like from a 360 degree view and not just cost. That's amazing. I want to d- drill down on that in a bit. Um, what solutions exist or existed uh, before you all at Borrego decided that Anza needed existence? Um, not much. I mean, we we still see today even even IPPs who are buying in the you know five hundred megawatt plus range are usually focused on nameplate costs and then risk, which um, you know the big guys are more sophisticated with regards to risk. But I was just talking to a, a, an IPP who, who buys about a gigawatt per year. I was asking the executive there, okay, how do, you, how do you quantify how much more you're willing to pay, for example, a Topcon more efficient module compared to a Monoperk? And he's like, we don't know. I don't know. Like, is it a penny? You know, I was like, I don't really know. Like, even this gigawatt per scale, uh, gigawatt per year entity, you know, didn't have the tools, the technology, and the data to do this. Um, so it's really hard. We we see that most are still, we think, doing it backwards, which is focusing on price and then making sure their risk boxes are checked, as opposed mm-hmm. to saying like, "Hey, let's look at total value, and let's also look at all of the products available to us." And so, so that's what we help customers do. Yeah, I mean, customers who do want to do. So there are some customers who are doing some value engineering today. The problem is it's it's really manual and time intensive and you can't possibly without the type of technology and data that we've developed and compiled, um, you can't possibly look at um, a large number of module options holistically. It's, it just, it can't be done. Yeah. You guys have been in the business a long time. So you have watched the industry evolve. Clearly some years ago you saw this opportunity or this breaking this breach in, um, in effect efficiency or an opportunity gap, uh, what needed to be true in the business? I think time is is everything, right? Like if you started five, 10, 15 years ago, probably this business wouldn't have succeeded. What needed to be true in order for what you're doing now to, to work? So a few things have changed over the last five years that I think have made it so that the, there's an opportunity for hands. And I think the industry needs what we're doing. Um, yeah. One is that if you go back five, six years ago, most projects were procuring their modules through their EPC. And so um, the, EP, like the EPCs were signing a contract with the, the IPP, the system owner, and they were not just providing construction services and engineering, but also all of the major materials, including the solar modules. That is completely flipped on its head. If you look at any mid or large scale project now, the IPPs are typically buying those modules directly. Right. And what that means is whereas the EPCs are really focused on what's the lowest cost, um, I want the lowest capex. We know because we we had a development business at Borrego and actually way in the past, we actually had a sister company, it was an IPP. We know what it's like to be in that business. 
And IPPs are seeking total lifetime value. They want the greatest IRR or the greatest NPV, whatever net present value or internal rate of return, whatever your financial metric is. And we saw that we had developed these tools at our own development business, which is now New Leaf, to be able to um, rapidly compare different design options and different product options in order to optimize total value. And so we said, hey, these IPPs need these tools. Now they're buying modules directly. They don't want just want the lowest cost. They want the highest value. And so when that right. changed, that created this opportunity. Got it. And what's cool is that you, uh, as we get into it, it will become clear like you you built this really core development team. You mentioned the development companies that have spun out um, through through intellectual property gained at Borrego, right? Just sort of being becoming good at what they do. You had such a wonderful team of both CNI and utility scale developers that you were able to internally marshal resources for a business like New Leaf, uh, which you then spun out. My assumption, therefore, is through New Leaf and through developing projects, which um, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, was you did a develop and flip, like you would build them and sell them at or close to NTP. And that meant that your ability to show an owner higher yield or higher return uh, and lower risks meant that you could get a higher developer fee and therefore a more profitable project, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's how all the tools that we have in Anza, all the tools that constitute the Anza engine were developed with that in mind. And so we had developed these algorithms, which pre-Anza were implemented through a bunch of spreadsheets. And what we started to do probably about five years ago, is we'd run every project through these algorithms and we could see, hey, what is the total value of this project before we do this optimization? And what is it after? And we actually started to quantify it. In the last year that we owned New Leaf, before we sold it, we wow. generated about $25 million of additional developer Whoa. fees just by running this Whoa. optimization. Yeah. And drop straight. What? Straight That's to- a number I haven't heard before. That is massive. You generated more and increased developer fees than most of your peers are making in revenue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was That's insane. There's a few things that made that business really successful and I think are still making that business successful. And one of them is certainly, it's not the only one. It may not be the biggest one, but certainly one of them is this, these optimization algorithms that we developed. Man. Yeah. Two things come to mind and I'm more, in, I'm curious. So like, um, are you familiar with Sunfig, the product that, I'm, um, I'm a little rusty on it, but I've definitely checked it yeah. out before. Yeah. 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 So that's the closest thing I've heard to something similar to what you guys are, what you're talking about. And I'd be really curious in the back end, like talk to your CTO and like hear their thoughts on this. But I did an interview with the founder of something. They got bought by uh, what is now Terra Smart. Right. And um, it sounds a bit like that in terms of optimization. Um, and, and I would encourage folks, if they're not familiar, I did that interview with the founder of something. Go and listen to it and we'll try to link to it in the episode notes. But, but it more reminds me of what Ray Dalio talks about in principles and how they started to build algorithms around the underlying principles of the investment thesis of Bridgewater. Have you read that book? I have it. I know, I know of him. I've heard him speak before, but I haven't read the book. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm just, in, in a lot of ways I'm thinking like, okay, I wonder if like where some of the inspiration comes from as the business is being built. Right. Cause the idea to go from, over improving spreadsheets to then running this, the equivalent of algorithms to then building your own software. A lot of companies go through that process, but very interesting. I mean, what, what I heard in the answer of what needed to be true is 
the uh, the maturation of the industry um, from a developer perspective, where you could start to al- algorithmically quantify the the impact of decisions, which just takes time. Yep, I think that had to be true. The buyer, the buyer changing from being an EPC focused on just cost to an IPP or a system owner focused on lifetime returns. The other thing that's changed is just the number of sellers. So um, like when we started in the industry, you were like, okay, which of the three or four or five uh, OEM, so, uh, solar module right. companies are you buying from? Now there's right, right. the Bloomberg, the BNEF, Bloomberg New Energy Finance tier one list is like 40 long. You know, there's, there's 25, 30 viable yeah. tier one, yeah. tier two companies trying to sell into the mm-hmm. market. Yeah, And so you were asking a little bit about like, where did this come from and yeah. what were you all thinking when you were doing this? And one of the things we kept thinking about was the, um, how the uh, travel industries evolved and airlines, oh. right? So like when, when I was a kid, when my parents needed to fly across the country, they had to pick up the phone and call United and be like, okay, what flights do you have? Or I don't know, TWA, Pam Am, whatever airlines there were at the time, right? And so they'd call one, they'd write it all down, they'd write the prices down, they'd call another, they'd write it down, and they'd be trying to aggregate and like with their you know chicken scratch notes come to a good decision. And that's kind of where the solar industry is now. You mm-hmm. want a solar module, you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to call you know Trina. So and then like, can I get a price and availability from them? Okay, then I'm going to call somebody else. Then I'm going to call somebody else. Then I'm like, oh, I forgot I didn't get the pan file from Trina. Uh, okay. Well, now I've got the prices, but like, what are the payment terms? I got to call them all back, you know? And so, whereas today in travel, now you go to Kayak and Kayak is like, you know what? We're going to aggregate all that data for the entire world and serve it up once, you know, or there's other Kayaks, but you know, you get the point. So that's basically what we're doing. We're like, look, we'll make all those calls. We actually do it digitally. There's a platform for the vendors to log in and update their information We'll aggregate it, structure it, and serve it up to you just like Kayak serves up all of your, you know, flight options. Yeah. And then we give you some analytics so that you can not just compare it based on price, but, you know, Kayak says, you know, duration of travel or, you know, whatever it is, we give you that too. So th- yeah. that's kind of the, the one of the analogies we use. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a decent amount of reading on the business model that led to the Expedias and Kayaks of the world, the um, Travelocity and and um, there's been a massive consolidation to basically three vendors right. in that industry now, right? Where 15 years ago, when the, that, when the travel industry was where we are now, there was a massive proliferation. There was no shortage of, uh, of cheap, cheap airfare or cheapoair.com, right? Um, <clears throat> it's a really interesting comparison, actually, and I hadn't thought about it that way. But it's a great idea uh, or it's a great example of like idea sex and like borrowing ideas from other industries where – we can draw parallels. And I think that the smartest businesses I've come across really do that well. And it sounds like, uh, like you said, I have a question typically I'll ask is like, who's your, who's your client? And the, the evolution of the client from the purchaser being the EPC or the developer to being the long-term owner changes the fundamental uh, driver for what is important. Right. Or the underlying exactly. That they solve for. Yeah. Exactly. 
You mentioned Halimi and renewable properties. As I recall, they were an early use case for proving out the uh, what became ANZA, the model internally. Can you talk to a couple of those examples and the results that proved internally to you and Aaron that um, that this there was a there there, and you really need to put more attention to it? Yeah, so we had we've had um, we've had great early adoption. The first year we launched it, we didn't even really give it a name, but we. We helped customers procure about 500 megawatts. And last year we helped with over a gigawatt. So, um, and we've got over 50, uh, 50 active customers. And there's actually, if you go into the platform, there's over 120 companies who have put projects in the platform of 40 gigawatts of projects in there. So the adoption has been great and we've kind of eclipsed all of our early growth targets. I think what really brought it home that there was not just a business here, but that the industry needed us is when we started to see customers who actually had really good technical expertise and actually had a bench of procurement people who saw that we could really help them and supercharge what they were doing and get to better outcomes in a fraction of the time. So for example, Standard Solar, who's one of the leaders in the middle market and has really an incredible bench of talent and experience, they've worked with us a lot um, because they understand that we can really enhance what they're doing and that they might have really talented people who can interpret the data that we're giving them and the analytics we're giving them and ask good questions about it, but that the data aggregation we've done and this technology, this engine that we built is really valuable to them. And so yeah. when we started to see uh, customers who weren't just uh, coming to us because they didn't have a bench of people to do this work at all, but actually had a bench and wanted us to help, you know, that was, I think a light bulb really went off that like, okay, we need to serve the entire industry with this. This is not just for people who are uh, uh, EPCs or IPPs who are buying in small quantities. Mike, I want to step back to 30,000 feet and also step back, uh, you know, 30, 40 years to the sort of the roots of what has become Borrego Solar, you and your brother, and ultimately Chris Anderson, your co-founder. But we'll get there in a minute. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego, California. So, mm -hmm. yeah, sunny San, San Diego. Diego except yeah. in June Glim. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty nice there. Yeah. yeah. And would you characterize your family as a, as a close-knit family? Is it, how, what's, is it a, what's the nuclear family size? Yeah, we're close-knit. I mean, I have two brothers, um, uh, Aaron, who was who the actually original founder of Brega, who I've worked with for more than 20 years, and then another brother, Philip. They're both younger. Philip actually worked with Brega for ten years, um, and then wow. has gone off to uh, to be a real estate entrepreneur and do his own mm -hmm. his own his own creative work. He's a writer as well. But yeah, we were close. You know, we we um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we were tight. We did something. You're the oldest brother. Middle, yeah. What what was conversation like around the dinner table as a kid? We were really into sports, <laughs> so um, we were all athletes. Um, we, uh, we watched a lot of sports. We were Padres fans, Chargers fans. My brother and I both worked at the stadium selling peanuts. So, um, no way. yeah, we went to San Diego state games, uh, back when Marshall Falk was there, who was, you know, hall of famer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we, we all ran cross country. I wrestled. So like sports was a big thing. Um, I think entrepreneurship was a thing actually. So, um, we did all sorts of little micro business. I mean, my dad was, he's an optometrist. He had his own practice. So that's a kind of entrepreneurship. Um, yeah. But then 
you know, we were always doing little schemes. I mean, Aaron's famous. He, um, he likes to tell the story about how, um, when he was like six, he was like selling pine cones to the neighbors. You know, they didn't even know they needed them, but he was, he was selling them pine cones. Um, That's awesome. But, you know, we had all sorts of schemes. So like we used to, um, we got into baseball cards. Um, and so at one point my dad got interested and said, let's get in the baseball card business and actually went to tops and made a wholesale purchase. And we started a little baseball card business. We, we were into comic books. So we started buying and selling and trading comic books. Um, Aaron had a, a, a candy sales business at school where he actually had employees or contract employees who were helping him at, at high school. Yeah. He was, he was clearing like, you know, hundreds of dollars a month, I think in candy sales. Yeah. So there were all these little things we did. My uncle had a, um, a business at the um, flea market of the swap meet selling a contact lens solution that we helped with. So, wow. yeah, I mean, I, I think it was just around. Um, and that's mm-hmm. actually Anza, or sorry, Anza, Borrego started with kind of a dinner conversation between my dad, Aaron, and a family friend who had done some mm-hmm. off-grid solar, you know, in the 80s. And um, so I guess that was the talk around the, the dinner table, you know, was was business. Um, my dad was really into trading stocks. So he'd talk about stock. He still talks about stocks a lot. Um, Does he? <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really appreciate, I guess, until, you know, had time to reflect back on how we got started that maybe it, it was there all the time and that we were talking about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Did it drive your mom nuts? Yeah. Uh, so my parents got divorced pretty early. And so my mom was, uh, my mom also actually had her own clothing retail business, but she didn't like talk about it with us. Uh, yeah. So no, there was a different dinner table conversation at my mom's different. than at my yeah. dad's. Yeah. Yeah. How interesting. You wrestled what weight classes? I was 125. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I was yeah. still 125, but yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Don't, don't we all? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Uh, did you do that all through high school? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we start, our high school started 10th grade, but 10th, yeah, uh, sophomore yeah. through senior year. Yeah. I and mean, that was my, that was probably my best sport. I was a good wrestler, not a great wrestler. Like I was, yeah. I was, well, I think yeah. qualifiably you've, uh, you've gone farther in other sports, but I want to hear about the lessons learned for you. I'm a, I'm a wrestler as well. So 125, 130. And I'm curious what you upon reflection might ascribe as value for you as an entrepreneur or just in life from wrestling? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think one thing that I actually, so I also, the other, the sport I've played the most and the sport I've spent the most time on is ultimate Frisbee. And I, I played in college and was captain of the team and we won three national championships. And then I started a team outside of college and, until recently when I tore my ACL, I was still playing in my forties. So, and I learned yeah. a lot from that as a team sport that I brought to business a tremendous amount, probably more than wrestling, but from wrestling, um, well, grit was something that I had to develop because I was not naturally a good wrestler. Um, mm. and so my first year I was really bad. I didn't even, I couldn't even wrestle in for the JV spot. Um, and then I just worked, I worked over the summer, went to wrestling camp, you know, like, did freestyle meets in the off season and just kept working on my game, I guess, and came back. And then my junior year was wrestled varsity. My senior year I was league champ, but like, it wasn't something I was like naturally good at. Um, and so I had to work through it. Um, also like culturally, like, um, and this was actually one of the great things about our high school is, um, 
we were in kind of a probably an upper middle class suburb, but the high school, the way they did it in San Diego Unified is the high school was made up of kids from all over San Diego, you know, like mm. our, very, our very suburb, diverse, yeah. like inner city. And so, um, and I had gone to this uh, very small private elementary school and this is actually a Jewish studies elementary school. And so came into this large high school on this wrestling team with, with kids from all over, um, all over the city with very different backgrounds, you know, um, yeah. and, uh, and that was, you know, that was, that was something I had to work through and, 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 uh, ultimately it was great and we were all great friends, but it was, it was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. Grit. Um, I mean the, it's the hardest six minutes of your life. Um, <laughs> for sure. It's so hard. People don't. And like, I have a appreciate, like, I don't actually like watching it. I have a son who's into the MMA stuff. Um, and having wrestled, I can just appreciate how tiring it is. It's so tiring. It's so tiring. Yeah. And, and it's only when you're there, um, two minutes and 56 seconds into the, the second period, or excuse me, one minute and 56 seconds in the second period, you can appreciate someone just like fishing and like f just giving up. Yeah. And, and even like the strongest person, like mentally can just say, okay, uh, I'll take a pass on this one. Um, and I think that that for me, when I look back, I can track like in high school, <clears throat> I was on, ba I was varsity baseball, varsity track, varsity football and varsity wrestling and excelled in all of them. But I gave up baseball for, tr for wrestling and I'm glad I did. Uh, because when I look back over the last eight years of my entrepreneurial career, um, and cumulatively, um, about, about 12 years. Cause I did four other years of a business before, um, long before well, around the time I first met you guys, there's just so many times you want to give up, <laughs> yeah. right? There's so many times where you're just like, I'm exhausted. I would be better off right now. Um, running track right? <laughs> yeah. where I can, uh, yeah. Or, or standing in the outfield waiting for someone to hit a ball, right. Then it being a hundred percent dependent on me and my performance every second for the next two minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You went off to Northwestern, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's or my that brother. Aaron? Yeah. That's Aaron. Yeah. Okay. So Aaron, so Aaron's at Northwestern and, and finishing school and coming up with this great business idea that became Borrego. Meanwhile, you are. Oh, where am I? Yeah. So I was, yeah. I was in grad school. Um, I was studying chemical engineering at Stanford. I did a master's at Stanford. My undergraduate was, uh, UC University of California, Santa Barbara. And, um, I was on the kind of academic track, like in a PhD program. And, um, but the dot com thing was happening in the Bay Area and I felt like I was missing out. So I left, um, left grad school and went to work in semiconductors. Um, but my timing was quite bad, actually. Like the dot com bust really happened right as I was getting that job. So I worked a pretty miserable job in uh, semiconductors for two and a half years, eventually got laid off, but had a really good severance. And Aaron, meanwhile, had, you know, kind of started this business. I mean, it was kind of, right. let's call it kind of a business. He had done like my, uh, a couple of kilowatts of projects on my dad's house and a, uh, an uncle and a friend of the family. And so mm -hmm. he probably had, you know, seven and a half kilowatts of installations. Um, yeah. But, um, and so I was looking around and I was like, actually had this book that was like how to find a job in um, green energy. 
you know, like it was like this pamphlet book or whatever. Meanwhile, my brother actually has a company in green energy, but like he was my little brother, so I wasn't wasn't taking him that seriously. Right. But I had this time off, and he's like, "Come, come help me. I need help with stuff." Um, yeah. And so I'm like, "All right, well, you know, I got time off, so I went down and and started working them on the business. It was pretty slow back then. You know, it's it's kind of hard to imagine. Right now, you drive around California and even like most states, and you see solar on rooftops everywhere. Back then, you drive like days and not see yeah. a single rooftop with solar. Like it just, yeah. no one was doing it. Um, the mm. phone was not ringing. Well, to your credit, Aaron said that the biggest close of his career was convincing you to join the company. So I, I want to ask a question, but first I'll give a, a premise um, for those who are unfamiliar still with Borrego, probably heard the name. Borrego Springs is an area around San Diego. There was a family friend who had been sort of tinkering 20 years too early with solar. A lot of this has been documented in countless stories and countless articles. So if you haven't read those, I'll give you the, the script notes. Aaron wrote a business plan. He came home. He talked to this family friend. He said, hey, can we just sort of like try this out with your now sort of almost defunct business? And it was a professor at the time, the guys I recall. And Aaron uh, jumped in and started doing what you had just described, which is like onesie twosie, like kind of calling around, trying to figure out who would buy solar Almost nobody was going solar in those days. What, when he called to convince you to join the company, what was the first job? I remember you said you were basically like a, 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 a free unpaid intern. So what did you, what did he, what skills did he leverage of yours to begin with? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, one is just, I mean, Aaron's not an engineer. And in those early days, it's kind of amazing how much we had to do for ourselves. Yeah. You, you know, like now you have modules, you have an inverter and they're like, okay, the string is eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. They just tell you back then we actually had to develop spreadsheet tools to do yeah. the electrical engineering to figure out, oh, yeah. okay, how can we string these things? We need to account for yeah. the hottest day, the coldest day, the sunniest day. So we had to develop all those tools. And so a lot of manual. Yeah. Tools. So there are a lot of manual tools. So I was doing some of that work. And helping him with some of the technical um, questions that that weren't easy to answer back then, you know. And did you, like many of us, um, to save money, design your systems in in PowerPoint? (laughs) We did design in PowerPoint. Yeah, we did. That was something that Chris Anderson, because I'm actually chemical engineer. I'd never used any CAD tools, and Chris Anderson's an architectural engineer. So when he came in, he's like, "Stop! (laughs) You got us an AutoCAD (laughs) license." Um, That's awesome. he, he started drafting, you know, the single lines and the roof layouts. So and, um, yeah. at the time I, I learned a little enough AutoCAD to do the roof layouts. Um, but yeah, it started yeah, I learned as pretty early. which was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah but, I, I had a guy call him from, uh, art from AEE. I'll never forget uh, Mike Ashmore. You remember Mike? Yeah, I remember and he goes, dude, Nico, I literally sent him an Excel spreadsheet because the guy I was working with was like, here's an Excel spreadsheet. It's one pixel by one pixel. Every pixel represents a solar module. This is how you lay out a solar array. And I was like, this can't be right. So I sent it to Mike and Mike was like, dude, do yourself a favor and learn TurboCAD over the weekend. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did the same thing. So, yeah. um, so Aaron brought you in to bring a little more engineering rigor um, which ultimately became the job of co-founder Chris Anderson. We'll get to that in a sec. And you began tinkering inside the business, we'll say. Uh, it should be noted, how much was the seed capital for the business? Because uh, I've heard you mention a bit about like how, how Aaron, how you guys got the business off the ground. It was 40,000. 
40, yeah, 000. so yeah. my parents put in 20 and then uh, my dad put in 20, I should say. And then the, mm-hmm. the original co-founder of that professor, Jim Ricard, he put yeah. in 20. Yeah. Amazing. Probably the 20,000, best 20,000 he ever spent in his life. Yeah. He, he did pretty good. Yeah. I know you're, I know you're super stoked about that too, right? That like, that's one of, must be one of the things that really makes Aaron happy, you know? Cause like you guys ultimately did really well with the business that he, that he uh, brought to, brought to the table. Fun story when you guys were first installing, and I remember back in these days when I first jumped in, uh, I, I heard Aaron say once, Japan more or less crushed the U.S. market before China did. Uh, that, and I heard you say Sharp was the Yingli of the early 2000s. Right. Um, we were buying solar modules, and, and you guys before uh, before the rest of us, like Matrix 80-watt modules um, and hardwiring in to the J-Box at a cost of like just about $10 a watt. Um, and at that price... Like few people in California, let alone the rest of the United States could really afford it. And the phones weren't ringing. No, not at all. Tell me, tell me what happened next. Yeah. So we were thinking about like, okay, well, we've kind of run out of cousins to sell to. Um, so, um, <laughs> and, you know, I think we like, we tried stupid stuff like door to door, but we're like, you know, Aaron's 22 and I'm 24 and we're selling solar and no one, mm. no one's interested. We're just getting the door slammed in our face. So we did a couple of things that worked, but the, the thing that like made a step change was it was actually right as Google was starting pay-per-click, which was also hard to imagine. Like there were no Google ads until somewhere around the 2002, 2001, and it was yeah. nascent. And so I somehow I learned about, oh, Google has this ad thing. Everybody's using Google. And so yeah. I registered us for pay-per-click. I said, okay, I'll spend up to $20 a month on the credit card. Oh my God. But yep. it was about a nickel to get the top advertised spot because no one else was advertising. Wow. And within a few days, we were getting, it wasn't like 20 calls a day, but we were getting five calls a day, which mm-hmm. was transformative. Five calls yeah. a day, you close 10% of them, which close rates were very low back then because, you know, it was people had sticker shock on the price, even though there were all these tax credits and a big cash incentive from the state of California. Um, but, you know, you get five calls a day, you close one in 10, and now you're in business. Mm-hmm. And so totally. um, that was really transformative and got me hooked because now it's like, oh, we're like, we're, we're like selling. Um, people are doing yeah, this. Spend people, a nickel people to make I didn't five, know. five grand. People with well, the return on market. Now, I imagine when I left, when we left residential and we sold the residential, but it was more like five or ten dollars to get that top spot. Yeah. It was per click, maybe it's yeah. twenty dollars now. I don't know, but it oh it, it skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And customer acquisition continues to be a lingering problem in the industry. Yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's always one, been the it's issue. One of the other problems that you'll have to fix after Anza. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, people have been working on that problem for 15 years, you know, I mean. And, yeah. and, uh, what do you see, if anything, since you've, I mean, I, I did not know until we had our original conversation that you had pioneered really in many ways. There couldn't have been more than 20 people in doing the same thing you were doing, like Google ads for solar in the entirety of the U.S. at the time you were doing it. So I would consider you a pioneer for that. <laughs> what do you see today? That is changing the landscape the way Google Ads did then. The residential sector is obviously, you know, the B2C sector. That's where a lot of this stuff happens. I'm actually kind of surprised at how much it still feels and looks like it did back in 2008 and 2009. I mean, I bought a home last September. It actually already came with solar because it's a new home and you have to in California. 
but I wanted to do an expansion array. And, you know, I was, I went online and the experience was pretty similar to what, what it was. Here's a solar calculator. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I would have thought, and I think they probably are like, I know Aurora a little bit. I only know a little bit Mm -hmm. about them, but you know, I would have thought by now um, that there would be good tools to, to take the process much further online. Yeah. Come on, Chris. What's up? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is that a th- Sarah? You guys got to whip it into shape here at Aurora. Oh, is that the Aurora? I don't, I don't know the people. I yeah, know the sorry, people, yeah. but um, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've checked out the, the tool. It seems like <laughs> that's what they're trying to do. Is I think, but they're but they're I think they're selling tools to the installers, which is which is fine. I think that probably helps them. And and having been, we got, I mean, Enphase has bought three lead generating companies in the last two years. I did not know that. I did not yeah. know that. So the manufacturers are going downstream, and it's not the first like. um uh, Sunrun bought one of the early ones back when I was at Trina. They bought one of the early ones. I mean, it, really, it was insane valuation, but it was great for them. I, I'm just curious if you see like, if you see other techniques, obviously I think social media also didn't exist right. at this time. And that's a game changer. YouTube five years later didn't exist at the time. And right now I think probably the biggest bang for buck people are getting in advertising and I'm not in the resi space is probably YouTube advertising as far as I've been told, because it's, um, that and TikTok, they're kind of uncharted territory. Um, and these new platforms are usually like that. I wonder, and the story for a whole other conversation, probably in uh, in Vegas when we see each other around, like how AI is going to change everything. But let's keep going here. Chris Anderson is the third co-founder. We haven't mentioned him other than a couple of times in passing. How and why did Chris come into the picture? So Chris and I were ultimate Frisbee teammates. He somehow heard, like maybe I was chatting about it. Maybe somebody told them that I was thinking about um, getting into the solar business with my brother and expanding it up to the Bay Area because Aaron was in San Diego and Chris and I lived up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so he's like, he invited me over to his loft and we started talking about it. And um, Chris had actually more business experience than I did for sure. Yeah. He had actually helped um, this like Ma and Pa machine shop. And so we sketched out a business plan on a single white sheet of paper. And the plan was we were going to do everything ourselves, sell it, install it ourselves, you know, uh, drive the truck, wear the tool belt. And right. we figured we had a plan that we could each make $45,000 a year. Take, yeah. And we were like, success. I mean, it was a pay cut for both of us, but we wanted to be in solar. And so we high-fived yeah. and like basically shook hands and did it, you know. And so Amazing. that was it. How did you vet Chris? Because he's on your, your ultimate team. He's just like a casual friend at this point. But I mean, like the, an ultimate team is pretty tight. Like, especially this was the team I started. We were pretty tight. Yeah. We hung out. Okay. We, we practiced every weekend, both Saturday for man, six months of the year, every weekend, Saturday and yeah. Sunday, we were going on the road together, you know, five, six times a year. But also yeah. we were our, our, we were like fraternity, we were our own social, that yeah. was our social circle. Like mm-hmm. if we went out on a Did Wednesday. you guys travel across the country? Yeah, yeah, we went to amazing. Yeah, the we didn't because you were national. Of course, you were. Well, it was national. You were national champion in in college. Though. That team was not. We weren't national champions. We were like, we we're just outside of the contention. We didn't yeah. quite go to make it to the national. Team. We were a good team, but again, not a great team. But we were great friends yeah. and we're still friends with that that group. Yeah. And and you didn't have to go. You didn't go and like check in on like references or anything like that. Just to, just to see. No. Um, no. Today I would. <laughs> but, I, mean, I, I mean, it's a big decision, right? In your twenties, you can make these kind of like brash decisions, like, "Oh yeah, I'll start a business with you." 
Um, we did. Which I, it I did the same in my 20s, and I definitely wouldn't do it now in my 40s. There's no way. Yeah. It's hard to even describe how naive we were. And when I say mm. we, um, Aaron and I the most, and Chris also, but like, yeah. we didn't know anything. We didn't really know anything about business. None of us had, like, Aaron had never had a job, like a like mm. a job at a company. A real job. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he'd worked at the stadium, and he'd, he'd had entrepreneurial things, and he'd had internships, but he'd never really had a job. Yeah. So, like, we didn't even know what gross margins were. Like, we right. really didn't. And I would say we didn't know that until, like, year two. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. really, like, we were really naive. Yeah. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. What did Chris bring to the table that, looking back, was instrumental in the success of Borrego? Obviously, he tightened up as an architectural guy, tightened up the presentations and the and the designs and everything. But where where did where would in the trifecta, the three legs of the stool? What has his been his domain that just has been the steady rock of Borrego? Yeah, it's changed a lot, and obviously now Chris is at New Leaf. He's not even at Borrego anymore. But um, yeah, uh, but in the early days, Chris brought a lot. The thing he brought that was like a most utility really quickly was Chris knew something about construction, and mm-hmm. Aaron and I did not. Um, so mm-hmm. he had you know he had you know, through some home projects, he'd also worked in machine shop. He'd built things before he like, he understood like the parts and pieces, Like he, he understood a little bit about, you know, not a big time construction site, but how like a yeah. residential construction site could be run. And Aaron and I did not have that experience. We're relying on these subcontractors who we had, you know, depending on the week, good or bad relationship with. And Chris yeah. allowed us to do a lot more of that ourselves, take control and, bring a different level of kind of diligence and quality to it. And so that was transformative. Yeah. And as I recall, you kind of in your family, there was some, some construction history, but for like very specific reasons, you and your brothers never learned to really how to use your hands in that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think my grandfather who I never met was, yeah, he had, he did real estate stuff and he also, um, 
he had a machine shop. And so, yeah, he worked with his, uh, for cars, uh, he did like a car repair business, you know, yeah. like, I guess this entrepreneurship in the family, the more I talk about it, the more <laughs> I realize it was there. But, um, but my dad, he didn't teach my dad cause he wanted my dad to be a professional. And so my dad wow. never learned how to fix cars. My dad was Common story. never that great about fixing things around the house. And so my dad didn't really pass it on to us. So we didn't grow up doing projects around the house. Um, yeah. Were you all thumbs on the construction site then? I was pretty bad. Yeah. Like <laughs> we had these, we had these subcontractors who, um, uh, you know, were in their forties, you know, maybe early fifties who had yeah. been working construction, you know, since they were kids and were pretty efficient and, you know, they were our contractors, but then we would go and work on the sites with them yeah, they would yell at me. They'd be like, you're doing it wrong. Like, get off your butt. You got to be on your knees. You know, like, don't, like, why didn't you bring all the bolts with you to the other side of the roof? Like, you know, walking back and forth, you know, like, uh, they they were constantly pointing out the ways in which I was inefficient. And Chris did too, a little bit in a nicer way. And eventually I got kicked off the sites. And they (laughs) did not. Yeah. He kicked you off because I get back to the office. He said like, you know what's, he didn't, I mean, he was nice. He's like, go, go sell the next one. We'll take. Oh yeah. You're, you're better. Yeah. Wow. He's diplomatic and above everything else. He's diplomatic. But then I remember like when they'd be on a really miserable site, like there was one really nasty one down in like South of San Jose where they were having to hand dig these trenches. He's like, why don't you come back out here? (laughs) Yeah. Hey, by the way, we got a shovel. Yeah. When they were like really down, he's like, you don't get to escape all this. So I came back out a couple Mm of times. Um, you know, and like hand mixed concrete and hand dug trenches and stuff. Yeah. But mostly Chris carried that side of the business. Yeah. Well, I've had a number of friends who have, um, who have worked in some capacity for you and speak to the incredible culture at Borrego. Um, you had an opportunity at the, the sucky corporate life before you helped start Borrego. And you are an athlete two experiences that are very, um, uh, very influential in helping um, build culture. Could you talk about the things that you experienced in corporate life that helped you shape culture at Borrego directly or, or inadvertently? And then I'd like you to follow that with um, the infusion of, and ultimately like you, you're like a, you became, you basically built a company with teammates in very specific, real ways, different offices in different ways. But talk about that after the corporate life and like what you brought from corporate that you wanted to fix. The job I had was, um, I worked at a company called Applied Materials. It was, um, it was a pretty miserable experience. Uh, I had five different bosses inside of two and a half years. I had a total of like two or three meetings with my bosses over that time. But I think one thing that was so painful was I never understood what was happening. I never understood what was going on. It was unclear what, how I was contributing to anything. And so that was a big, Hey, what not to do. And so something that we always have had, we had it at Borrego, I think the entire time. It's one of the things that people loved about it. And then we have the same culture in Anza is you know, let's be transparent. We have this cultural principle of build long-term relationships based on trust and transparency. So I'm going to talk to you about what's going on. I'm going to talk to you about when things are going well. I'm going to talk to you about when things aren't going well. Um, I'm going to give you respectful but direct feedback so that you always know where does the company stand? 
where do you stand with the company? Where do you stand with me? We had this thing at Borrego called the Borrego System of Excellence, and we had written out our cultural principles. And um, the one that people hung on to the most was this um, this one, build long-term relationships based on trust and transparency. And so mm-hmm. we've always tried to live that. And I think that's really been the bedrock of our culture. When I, ta- I talked about, you know, in the beginning, the quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And yeah. at some point you get big enough that you can't just assume that the culture you had when you were small will you know, continue, mm-hmm. that you'll have that continuity, especially as you spread out across the country. And so yeah. um, probably about eight, nine years ago, um, I started this initiative of like, we need to work on the culture. And so I started these culture workshops where I and then other leaders in the companies, we'd go around, we'd pull like five to 10 people into a conference room and we'd just talk about that principle, build long-term relationships based on trust and transparency. But the way we did it is we did it through storytelling. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell a story about uh, what this principle means to me and where I've seen it either being lived out or not lived out. And then I'm going to ask for volunteers to tell their stories. So we did, we do storytelling sessions to bring the principle to life. And it was great. That was, um, it's when you're talking about like kind of one of these soft cultural principles, like trust and transparency, it doesn't really work to speak in the abstract. You have to have a story because people can remember stories. I love that. It's so true. People remember stories. Yeah. And uh, I mean, what, what an insightful decade ago to, to recognize like we've got this off, we've got offices across California. We've got offices across the Eastern seaboard. Um, you got to make sure, I mean, it really, there's so much I would unpack there that it really inspires me that you did a culture workshop and it wasn't the trope. Uh, we're going to go through our values, like all of them. Here they are going to go through all. You said, nope, this is the most important value. Everything else is iterative of this. And uh, it comes back to a book that I recommend a lot called The One Thing. And the principle of The One Thing as a productivity, you're probably familiar with it as a productivity mechanism is what one thing, if by, by doing it, will make all other things easier or unnecessary. And that guiding principle uh, has changed the way I do business. It's changed the way I think about life. Um, I wish that I practiced it more often on a day-to-day basis. I think about it. It's probably the thing I've quoted the most in my life. Um, but it reminds me of that, right? It's coming back to corp- the core principles, core values of the company can, for Borrego, be derived back to the, the singular element of build long-term relationships based on trust and transparency. I love that. That's really special. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. And then what did, what did sports uh, teach you? And how did, how did uh, Ultimate Frisbee ultimately build the, the Ultimate Borrego? So um, I got a lot out of participating in the college program that we had at UC Santa Barbara. So that there was a, a really rich tradition there. Um, it was the most successful program in the country. The team had won three championships in a row. And then at the tail end of my tenure there, we won another three championships in a row, which no one has done since or before. But they had this this program of they they had a book they would give you when you became captain, and it basically was like this is how you take the team from the start of the year to the end of the year. And so it was about like, look, there are we need to teach everybody a hundred little things and practice those hundred little things over and over again in order to achieve the big goal. And so this idea of patience, this idea of investment, this idea of like, look, let's, um, 
let's let's not just focus on trying to get straight to winning games now. Let's focus on investing in the people and investing in the team. And they had a system for doing it. These people in the eighties invented the system and it was it was incredibly powerful. The other thing, and this is this is, this is a quote which um I actually don't know, but we used to say, look, if you want to win a national championship together, um, you need to have a hundred beers with every one of your teammates. And so we would say that to each other like all the time. And it wasn't because we were actually counting. We didn't count. And I'm sure I didn't have a hundred beers with all my teammates. But the point was, look, if you're going to do something incredible together, if you're going to win together, you need to really be tight. You need to build those relationships, right? Yeah. You can't just show up at practice. You can, but you're you're not going to achieve all you can if you just show up at practice and then you all go right. your separate ways. And especially in the early days of Borrego, it was very much like that. Like we were together a lot, all the time. And we started as friends. And so those relationships were already yeah. there. Um, but th- those were a few things that I took from those, those ultimate Frisbee days. Yeah. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but what system was developed in the eighties? Do you know? Yeah, they, they didn't have a name for it. Uh, I don't think, but the team just inside the, it program was called the black, the team was it's still called the black tide, but they had, um, you know, they had a book, <laughs> they gave you a book and the book was like, okay, when you start the season, you have a bunch of people who don't even know how to throw a Frisbee right now. Now everybody probably does because there's ultimate Frisbee in high school and grade school and whatever. But back then you were getting a bunch of like freshmen who were like, I want to play the sport yeah. and I have no idea. I don't even know the rules. And so how within a season can you take people who have no experience and no skill and make them into players that can compete at the highest level while at the same time teaching your entire team to work together towards a common goal with a common strategy, a common set of tactics. And they started with the micro. I think that was like the thing that, that they were really smart about was they're like, let's not just put people on a field and scrimmage. Let's start with like the micro scale of like, okay, how do you throw a very short pass? Let's throw that over and over and over again. Okay. How do you throw a slightly longer pass? Let's throw over and over again. So just like, I guess that, 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 that was the thing that they, they had this big plan, but they realized, Hey, we got to take really small steps. How would I find that book? I like want to read it now. <laughs> That's I guess, my, my takeaway from this is I'm going to go find the black tide. <laughs> the black tide book. It. Yeah. Get to find. It's tied with a D. Yeah. Tied. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. I'm, I'm looking at my I, shelf. I've already done like three it. Google searches. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Dude, if you have yeah. it, bring it to RE plus and I will, I will mail it back to you. <laughs> I've moved so many times that I'm scared. I've lost it. Yeah. You know, I have to say one of the reasons I do these interviews is because uh, I find that all too often we get caught up in the, the egoic competition of the industry and we can dehumanize um, uh, people because they're associated with entities that on the playing field we're competing against. Right. And as we all know, as athletes in competition, you meet up with someone who just kicked your ass on the playing field in a bar later, and you can discover that you've got more in common than you ever thought possible. Obviously, like you both love the same sport, you're both athletic and competitive, all these things, right? And that's what I love about how the solar industry has evolved. And I've done, you know, 600 plus episodes of Suncast interviewing my, uh, my peers, my mentors, people that I, um, that I view like you guys as uh, like true industry pioneers um, in large part because I've found that I've made false assumptions. I found that I didn't quite dig in enough to understand the business behind the business, the people behind the business, the culture behind the business. 
and give people the benefit that they are individuals, not not like they're not uh, like Borrego isn't a machine, right? It's made of humans. Um, so I really appreciate the ability to see behind, like see the intentionality of how the business was built um, and, and a lot of the hard knocks that you guys went through. What do you think looking back on 20 plus years? And this is a big question and you can ask, answer it probably in a, a, a myriad of ways, but what would you say are the one or two or few uh, legacy uh, impacts that you believe or hope are Borrego's impact? So one thing I'm really proud of is um, the work that we did to help develop the what became the community solar market. So it, it, people don't really know the history, but that really all started in Massachusetts um, yeah. with uh, Governor uh, Deval Patrick passing the Green Communities Act and then Massachusetts developing this really complicated SREC program. And we were very early in Massachusetts and um, the team, including Dan Berwick and Andrew Reed, who are now leading New Leaf Energy, um, they really did amazing work to get the very first, um, at the time they were virtual net metered, but eventually became community solar projects financed. And so um, it was a class of projects that no one had executed before, that banks had never financed before, using this incredibly complicated SREC uh, program that you know a PhD in the state government invented that only a few people understood. And so we went on the road, and, and uh, Dan led these discussions, all these banks, and eventually we got the first project financed with the U.S. Bank. And that kind of opened the floodgates to virtual net metering, which became community solar. And, you know, that New Leaf is still probably the leader in community solar, but um, I think we really helped accelerate or maybe even enable the creation of that whole category of projects. Um, and that's, so that's something I'm really, that's one thing I'm really proud of that we did. What drove your exit from the residential market in 2009? <laughs> 2008 and 2009 were a really interesting time. It's, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it's so long ago that I bet a lot of people listening were like, yeah, I was in grade school, you know? Um, yeah, I know. But uh, I was floored by the way, when Borrego, like for me, Borrego was the residential. Oh, uh, so. that's nice to hear. I, so, I mean, we had built this residential business on a very thin capital cushion and it hit all Brega was mostly a residential company up until about 2009. Um, and the business had been profitable, not widely profitable, but it was making money. And we had project gross margins that were in the 30% range, but that's kind of what you needed to do this work. It's custom design and construction work. But then in 2007 and 2008, things really started to change. Two things changed. One is the residential real estate market had gone from like, it was like a hockey stick growth in value. Like homes were just going up into the right in value. And so everybody had equity to tap into to pay for these systems. And it flatlined and then started to crash. And then the other thing that happened was the competition changed. Um, Solar City in particular came into the market. They had... We had whatever four forty thousand dollars that had turned into a few hundred thousand dollars of investment. They had thirty million, and yeah. uh, they came in and were very aggressive on pricing. And between the collapse of residential real estate and the competition that uh, Solar City and a couple others were starting to create, our margins went into the teens, and so we started yeah. losing money. And we went. We were also in the market to raise capital. And 
And um, we eventually raised it um, uh, under duress. And that's a whole other story that I could talk about raising capital in 2008, which was very difficult. We'll, we'll get yeah, there. We'll get but, there. Um, uh, after we raised the capital, we were looking at the business. We were looking at the residential business and was still losing money. And we couldn't, we yeah. couldn't see a quick path towards turning it around given margins and customer acquisition costs. We made the decision, it was a hard decision, that we were going to restructure the business and sell the residential. And that involved taking the company from 165 people down to 45 people. And um, That's massive. Yeah, we were lucky. We found a buyer at the time. It was a company called Grow Solar. And they bought the business and hired the vast majority of the people. We had to lay off 30 people, which was very difficult. The first time I'd ever done a layoff. But we were able to find a home for the business um, and restructure down to 45 people. And we saw that um, as really the, the, the only viable path to return to profitability in a reasonable time frame that wasn't going to require you know, tens of millions of dollars of additional equity risk. That pivot worked. Ironically, two years later, Solar City snapped up uh, the resi business of Grow. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it's a tough, it's a really tough business. I mean, I'm impressed, you know, that Sunrun, you know, has emerged and been so successful in it. Um, I actually don't yeah. really believe Solar City ever made it work, um, even as part of mm. Tesla. I, it's hard for me to see how they've, yeah, how they've actually made it work. Yeah. But it is a tough business to scale nationally, and so. Would would you enter the game now? No, not you know, in that way. That, not in that way. I yeah. mean, again, obviously, Solar City. Sorry, Solar City. Sunrun is making it work, and I think there are a few yeah. others that are probably making it work. But to me, I think now the technology and the tools have evolved such that local electricians or installers should be able to do this yeah. stuff, and they have an, a customer acquisition cost advantage because they're 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 getting their business through referrals. They're getting their business right. through local contacts. They don't need to install a megawatt per year. You know, they, their overhead is really, really slim, you know? And so just like when you need to get your water heater replaced, I think you're generally not going to some big national company. You're like, okay, who's the, who are the local water heater people? And yeah. I couldn't tell you who the local, who like the, the train installer is. Right. And I probably am going to go through, train or similar if i'm going to try to get that yeah yeah so i i don't see any reason why that last mile of the the residential design and installation can't be you know a great big network of local installers as opposed to what solar city was trying to build and maybe to some extent what sunrun has built so no i would i do think that sector is interesting overall if you're providing helpful tools um, like maybe the Aurora tools, like or right. value added distribution or mm-hmm. um, equipment that's you know end phase and solar edge were obviously transformative. You know, going from uh, to the the micro inverters or the DC optimizers away from those yeah. small. They're not really central, but small. You know, the Sunny Boy type six the string, the string inverters. inverters. Yeah, that made life a lot easier. So I, I think if you can do things to help the sector, but I just don't believe, I just wouldn't want to try and build a national installation mm. company. I just, I, yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. In that way. Uh, and because with 20 years experience, certainly you've experienced some dead ends. What, uh, if any dead ends have you, or, or kind of time wasted, uh, do you look back on and reflect like, what did you learn? And despite those failures, 
Yeah, we've had a lot of dead ends. I mean, you know, candid, like not everything at Borrego has been a success overall. It's been a success in aggregate, but we've had a lot of failures. Um, ultimately, we struggled to make the behind the meter business work, period. You know, I mean, we've, we've, we exited it. We just couldn't make it work. I mean, we, we worked on that business for, um, if you don't even, if you don't count residential to more than 10 years. And we just, we just really, we, we, we were challenged to make it work. Um, and so if, if somebody's trying to do that business, they should take a different approach than we did. And I think some are, and some are having some success, but even the behind the meter commercial business, we really struggle with. At one point we dabbled with going into the racking business and making our own rack. You know, luckily that was a fairly short lived experiment. (laughs) Um, we got out of that. Um, I'm not saying you can't be successful there, but I think we underestimated the amount of investment, one big thing I've learned is they're all like you're in the you're in the renewable energy industry. There's tons of opportunities. There's no shortage of shiny objects you can chase. And mm-hmm. um, there's an you you asked for a quote in the beginning. Um, another great quote is I think um, there's this quote I think it's from one of the Jim Collins books that you know companies don't typically die of starvation; they die of indigestion. And so one of the greatest dangers and we did this at borrego um is trying to do too much not realizing that any one thing you're Mm -hmm. trying to do is probably deserving of your full attention so you need to be really careful about trying to have like two businesses in parallel three businesses in parallel four business sun edison clearly died of indigestion not starvation like the biggest failure right um and that's true for most so um so that's that's definitely a lesson learned Here's the reality too, for those of you listening, that uh, you've heard this through Jim Collins' book, right? Um, and you've seen it with Sun Edison, you've seen it with, with spectacular failures in this industry. I'm sitting here at Suncast running uh, numerous like uh, profit centers, if you will, right? And despite my job being talking to guys like Mike and asking for advice through the lens of a podcast, helping you all learn and grow your businesses, it's super hard to put into practice. It's so hard, right? It's like, I'm avoiding a bunch of shiny objects. Like I'm not brokering modules, which everybody asks me to do because I'm so connected. Um, it's it's hilarious, right? Like we get these calls all the time. Like individually, personally, I was talking to my friend Colin the other day. He's like, dude, I could be a recruiter. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> Everybody's asked me why I'm not a recruiter because it's not my, that's not my leaning. I'm terrible at email follow-up and lo and behold, you gotta be good at follow-up being a recruiter. Um, but I could- in, in theory, I can make a lot of money. So that's really helpful. And I, I hope that folks that are, have listened this late into the interview and I hope you listen all the way through, like this is the good stuff. Like, man, a guy who's been running this business for 22 years just told you don't dive into digestion, right? Just listen to that. Um, every company also goes through sort of a valley of death and a crisis moment. Your, uh, of, of the many, perhaps that you had one that, um, you are now far enough away from that you are willing to talk about openly um, was an eight hour trip to find a good lunch spot. Can you tell me about that? So yeah, 2000, uh, this is to that late 2008. Now it's during the financial crisis. The financial picture for Borrego is um, pretty bleak. Um, We've, we had basically no equity cushion and we went from being, marginally profitable to wildly unprofitable. And we'd had three financings get to um, 
really the goal line where we were like, yeah. we had full docs and we were about to sign and then something happened. The first one was Bear Stearns failed. The second one, they they walked away because overall market erosion. And the third one, we were about to sign and Lehman Brothers failed. So we've got, um, we're in trouble. You know, I mean, that's like, I guess that's the cliff notes. We're in trouble. And we have this uh, investment banker who's also <laughs> realizes we're desperate. And basically if yeah. he gets any interest, he's like, let's get on a plane and go see him. And so we got this, um, we got this inbound call through a friend of a friend of a friend from uh, the chairman and CEO of a, a, a Taiwanese conglomerate that seemingly on the surface had nothing to do with renewable energy, nothing to do with solar. Um, and they're like, we want to meet you. And so, but we didn't have much time because <laughs> we had to get back to meet with somebody else. And so um, my brother and I went to SFO. We, um, we got on a plane and we were getting on a plane that morning. We landed in Taiwan at 6 a.m. And our schedule was to come back at 8 p.m. that night. Um, yeah. And we get to the counter. Um, and I remember the woman who worked for Eva Airlines was like, oh, there's an error with your ticket. It has you coming back the same day. And I was like, um, and at that point, I was you punchy. I'm like, yeah, we're just going for lunch. We heard there's a great lunch spot in Taiwan. So, um, so yeah, we arrived in Taiwan. We made our pitch. We had some Peking duck for dinner. Uh, we got back on the plane and flew back, um, and it was it was terrible. And like it was even worse. The flight back, we got the last row in the entire plane on China Airlines oh, with yeah. no recline after having done two ten plus hour no. trips in less than twenty four hours. It was rough times, but you know it was worth it. That that was the company made the investment. That was the meeting with Walston Liwa. They became our thirty million dollar. Yeah, guy. they became our investor. Um, They've they've been our partner the, uh, the whole time. We actually became a subsidiary. Um, they 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 own not all the stock, but the majority of the stock from two thousand nine on. So they were wow. they were our savior. You know, to be fair, yeah. That's fantastic. So you've been an employee for Walson for the last. Yeah, I mean it's years. a little weird. I mean I'm an employee of like Brego's its own company. Always has been its own company. Sure, but yeah, I mean I've worked with them since two thousand eight, and um and they've been our yeah. They've, yeah. they've been our partner since then. Yeah. Savior. Yeah. Lawson. Yeah. Peking duck. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as an entrepreneur who has not died from the many bouts of indigestion, uh, about three, four years ago, as we talked in the beginning, you guys started looking for blue ocean, mm -hmm. new leaf what, had turned over a new leaf and you guys were ready to spin it out. And you're seeing the value of what you created for new leaf as a on a technology side and ultimately turned that into Anza. I want to talk about two things. One, can you put me at a place in time and just like briefly where you, Aaron, leadership are going, how do we vet this? And, and how did you? And then I want to hear the real numbers behind either and or the renewable uh, properties or the Greenbacker deal that sort of helped validate like, holy crap, this really works, right? At Borrego, I think one of the things we've always been willing to do and um, something that we carry forward to Anza is we're always willing to do small experiments. And so, you know, that's how we started. Um, we were out there talking to IPPs. We realized they were making bad decisions uh, in their procurement. They were buying the wrong modules. They were spending a ton of time and money doing it. And we had these tools that could help them. And so we just said, okay, Aaron, go out and sell some. You know, see, like, go try it. We don't have to give it a name. Just go try it. 
you know, um, and and he he did a couple of deals, and we're like, oh, there's interest, there's market interest, and so that's when we we're like, okay, let's give this thing a name, let's make it a business unit. I can't remember those first sales, unfortunately. Aaron probably could, but um, but yeah, we we just said, hey, go try it. Like the market needs what we've got. And that was before we had the platform. We didn't have the app. We didn't have anything. It was just like, look, let's use our spreadsheets. Let's use your market knowledge. And let's try and help customers get a better outcome and see if they'll buy from us. And they did. Yeah. How long did it take to incubate that idea before it really came to the head where you're like, oh my gosh, this is a real thing. Let's put some resources around it. It was, I would say 2021 was our, like I had started, um, I had some different ideas about technology that I thought mm. we could develop that could help the whole industry. That was really the big thing that I wanted to do with the next chapter in my career. Like selling New yeah. Leaf was, that took a lot out of Borrego. I mean, that was most of the assets of Borrego, to be fair, right? Um, and mm. um, we have great people. We had great people left at Borrego. We still have great people left at Borrego, but like yeah. that was a lot of our talent and also a lot of my friends. And so, there was like, yeah. okay, we're going to do something different next. And I wanted to do something that that had the potential to not just help project by project, but that actually we could invent some things that could help all the projects. And so that right. was the idea. Like, and so that kind of got me to technology and data. Um, and so yeah. we started playing with ideas in that area in 2020. The first sales were in 2021. And I think midway through 2021, we're like, hey, let's give this thing a name. We called it Current at the Time. We ran into some trademark issues, so we changed the name to Anza, um, and um, and then we were kind of off to the races as a real business. We launched yeah. the technology platform last year in 2022. So talk to me about the business model. How do you make money? Is it a SaaS company? Unpack that for me. So we're evolving. I think eventually it will look more like a SaaS company, but um, what we do is we are helping make the transactions happen, and then we take a fee the buyer pays us uh, a fee. Uh, it's a small dollar per watt uh, fee yeah. on a fraction of all the transactions that happen. Again, not unlike the uh, the the travel site aggregators. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think where where you eventually be is um, companies will subscribe. They'll pay their subscription again through those fees um, based on the volume of their procurement. How did you know that you'd reach product market fit? I mean, it was shocking how how successful we are. We were in those very early days. I mean, mm -hmm. we said, "Hey, Aaron, go try this." He was able to do some deals. Then, you know, twenty twenty one, we're like, "Okay, this is midway through. Let's make it a real business." And we sold five hundred megawatts. And then twenty twenty two, we doubled and sold a gigawatt. And um, there's really never been a point in time where we've had to doubt the premise, like doubt that, hey, yeah. the market needs this. Like this whole idea of like, let me call Trina and see what they can do. And then let me call Canadian and see what they can do. And then try and like aggregate that all into a spreadsheet, but then still not really be able to compare the products holistically. I know that's still what most people are doing. But I can guarantee yeah. that almost yeah. all of them are getting into a non-optimal outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And Walson Borrego capitalized it. Yep. So Borrego financed the early development. We got to profitability pretty quick. I mean, we, we were profitable in 2022. So, um, so that was great. But we put a lot in. I mean, we've invested 
millions into the technology and the data aggregation. Yeah. And that came from um, Borrego. But yeah. then in May of this year, um, management, we partnered with um, some private equity investors and we bought the business from Borrego. And so now we're a completely independent company. Um, so no formal association with Borrego anymore. It's, it's its own thing, and which is really exciting for, for me. Anybody. I mean, after 20, 21 yeah. years um, with Borrego, um, to ke- kind of get to do the startup thing again, which we are, we're a startup. Um, it's fun and energizing and really exciting. Yeah. And if anybody's, since I am running out of time here with Mike, if you're curious what it looks like to do what he just said, then there's an excellent two-part interview with George Hirschman and how they spun solve out of Swinerton that is effectively the same, uh, the same. I mean, it's th- this model has been used many, 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 many times over, over the course of history. I'd love for Mike to tell his story, but we've already captured it with George. And I think that you'd be well served for the many lessons you could learn there as well. So I'll just point you to that. And um, it's fa- I didn't know that about Anza. So that's really, really cool um, to learn that. Let's turn the corner here and head towards home base. Uh, I got, there's so many, I want to ask you, like, I want to get you and Chris and Mike or you and Chris and Aaron on. There's so many things we could talk about. And I know that folks have, uh, have probably really enjoyed this conversation. I believe that there are people who serve as kind of like almost shaman, right? Like in, so instrumental in our life that we look back and it's like, okay, without that person, I wouldn't have become who I am. Is there anybody like that in your life that you, uh, through this, inter- through this interview, perhaps even like, like to thank or that you commonly point to and say, yeah, like this person left an indelible mark on me. So many. Um, and some of them are mentors, like one in particular, I met early on a, a gentleman named John Wallace, who is an experienced CEO in the re- renewable energy space. He ran Zantrax before that. He's actually, if you watch Who Killed the Electric Car, he's there because he ran Ford's mm-hmm. alternative um, fuel vehicle program. And he's been a great mentor and still is today. Actually, he's, um, uh, I still talk to him about Anza all the time. Um, yeah. and, um, but also like people that I worked with who maybe even worked for me, um, who, who taught me a lot. Um, you know, the, the, the team at new leaf, that whole exec team, uh, Dan, Andrew, Brendan, you know, I, Brendan Nagel, I've worked with forever. I got a tremendous amount from working with him. Um, and then, um, my brother <laughs> for sure, who challenges mm-hmm. me in many ways, we're very, very different. Um, and, um, we fight a lot. Um, but I learned from those fights and I imagine he would say he does too. Um, so yeah, it's so many, it's too many people to list. Yeah. I, I know, man. I know. Um, and I, you know, I, I know that an interview with, I, I would love to hear a story of like the how you guys have come together and, um, and really done this. Cause I think that's one of the t- great testaments in the industry of how you ran this business together for 20 years. There are few, if any companies like it, honestly. Um, and, and what a team, um, that you've had Chris, Brendan, uh, Bradley Hibbard was like my main contact way back in the day when I was trying to sell you guys little meta panels. I'll never forget right. that. Um, and he was totally into it too. He's trying to figure out how to, how and where it would make sense and like Puerto Rico and all kinds of right. stuff. So, um, was there anything that you feel uh, uh, that you look back on kind of like these quotes that we talked about that served as kind of a, a foundational insight uh, or a pivot moment? Somebody said something to you, you're like, oh, okay, this actually helps me in a way that I hadn't con- con- actually understood before. One, I guess one thing I'll say is, is probably about eight years ago, 
we were struggling with trying to figure out, like we, we realized we were in the development business. We'd kind of gotten there by accident, mm-hmm. but we couldn't like, we were like, okay, how do we document? How do we come to a consensus on how it is that we do our development? Like what's our development process? And so both myself and actually Ryan Burrowbridge, who's in a uh, Borrego, you know, kind of OG, like he was there, he's there with us since the beginning. We both at the same time discovered lean and the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously we don't have time to talk a lot about lean, but um, that has completely changed studying Toyota and what they did to dominate the car industry and how, while people think of it, their Toyota production system is about like inventory reduction and, and highly efficiency manufacturing. It's actually a lot about people. It has a lot to do yeah. with people. People is at the center of the entire Toyota philosophy and so learning about that and studying that and um, there's, you know, wealth of resources and history you can study really transform the entire way I think about business, the way I think about leadership, the way I think about organization building and culture too. And um, I think a lot of the success we had over the last 10 years was because mm. we're like, we saw that and we're like, there's so much here that we need to learn and copy from. So, yeah. I love that. Man. See that an hour and 40 minutes into interviewing folks and we get to something that is like such a little golden nugget that we didn't even know we were going to talk about in this call. Um, thank you for that, Mike. I, I can't tell you how many times I've asked this question, man. And it's, it's rare that I get that specific an answer. And I just want to appreciate that about you and, and how you thought through that answer. And um, yeah, studying Toyota specifically, like the, so my, two of my biggest takeaways from this interview for what it's worth, like, and I'd rarely do this inside the interview is like study history. History is a good teacher. History is a great teacher. Like Borrego, one of the most successful companies in our industry has set the standard for many different things, learned from Toyota in the automotive industry and kayak and the, and the travel industry, right? They didn't learn from SunPower. They didn't learn from Grow Solar. I mean, they did. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like there are internal lessons that we're learning from each other, but we have to look to other sectors where shit's been figured out. And you guys are an excellent example of not being afraid to adopt practices and not being afraid to adopt partners from outside the United States. If one of the first, you guys are one of the first to bring like at scale Asian investment into the solar industry. And, uh, and I commend you for that. We've talked about a bunch about how you love to read. Uh, before I let you run, uh, do you, can you drop some wisdom on us, books that have inspired you and that you pass along? Sure. I mean, since we were talking about Toyota, um, it's, it might mm-hmm. feel a little academic, but The Machine That Changed the World is a great book. Um, I like all the Jim Collins books, you know, good to yeah. great. Um, yeah. There's a great, I really like books about corporate failures. Actually, you're talking about leading. Uh, yeah. There's, I think it's called, when Giants Fall, it's a Jim Collins book. Um, that's really great. Uh, the Culture Code, on, the Culture Code on Culture, um, and then um, I, I measure what ma- culture. Yeah, measure great. what matters. It's a hot book right now, but I think it's a good one. It's about um, OKRs and uh, how to do um, how the mighty fall. I, I Jim think Collins. that's what it's called. Is that what it's called? How the mighty yeah. fall. Yep. I'm looking up how the mighty fall. Yeah. That's actually my favorite one of his books. I know good to great is the one everybody reads. Um, Thank you. I haven't read this one and it's from 2009. This is another great thing. Read old books, <laughs> folks, read old books. There's some good new books, but there's re- there's wisdom in, in old books. 
How the Mighty Fall is not terribly old, but an 09 book in the canon of Jim Collins. This would be one of the earlier uh, one old, of the earlier books. Two so. oldies but goodies, Seven Habits for Highly Successful People. I still think it's yes. a good book and um, how to make friends and influence people. Um, I, I think that's what it's called. Is that the... Yeah, yeah, that's it. Those are old, but good. My mom gave me that book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, um, when I was 10 years oh, old. <laughs> you were a little early. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'd say that I was definitely too early. She, uh, there's other books that she gave me too that I'm like, why did you give me that yeah. so early? Um, what look? How can folks? I, I mentioned AnswerRenewables.com is the website. If folks want to reach out directly, is LinkedIn the best way? Is there some other way that you like? To yeah, LinkedIn's great. I think that's I think that's a good way to reach me. Um, I check frequently, yeah. Um, but yeah, I encourage people um, if you're out there buying solar modules or batteries, you should at least check it out. Um, and it's free. It's free to check it out. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you'll be impressed. Yeah. Well, Mike, let's end today with our bold prediction. Um, when we look out to, to 2030, you know, it's increasing, it's closer every day, every day now, six, seven years away. Um, and we've unlocked our industry's ability to scale without, without the inefficiencies we currently express uh, in this call. Uh, what do you think we got right? to get us to that point where like our industry is as efficient as the automotive industry and the, the travel industry. Yeah. Um, well, this is not related to my business, but I'm just going to say it <laughs> cause I really feel that the biggest problem that we need to solve is interconnection. It's how to, how to put yeah. more resources on the grid. I actually, the IRA is great, but when we passed it and I'm glad we did, I said, okay, but it doesn't really matter how much tax credits we give if we're, we're throttled right. by how many resources we connect, connect to the grid. And so we, that is the problem to solve. Like it, it's, it's, yeah. it's, we don't need costs to drop anymore. Like it's cheap enough. I mean, we should drop costs. Let's keep dropping it. Great. But like, we don't need it to be any cheaper. We need to be able to connect resources onto the grid faster. And I'm, I'm a little disappointed with I know we're working on it as an industry, but how little progress we're making there. Mike Hall is co-founder and CEO of Borrego and now Anza, New Leaf Energy before that, and a 20 plus year veteran of renewables and someone that I both admire and, and call a friend. Thank you, Mike, for finally coming on to Suncast. I truly appreciate it. And I look forward to the feedback from folks as they get a chance to lean in. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks a lot, Nico. That was podcast gold, folks. Hope that you are sticking around all the way to now because this is one of those episodes that the longer you listen, the better it gets. Uh, and Mike came out the gate swinging with some really, really great insights into how our industry works. Thank you, Mike. Thank you to the Borrega and Anzo team for helping Mike uh, carve out the time uh, and generously extend his time for us to get all of that great content. If you loved this interview and this episode uh well we've got more like this in our more than 600 interviews and back catalog over at mysuncast.com but before you go jump over there in the podcast listen app that you're using spotify apple Podcasts, whatever it is please take a moment give us a five-star enthusiastic review and rating so that others can find the show it truly really does make a difference i wouldn't ask if i didn't believe that it does um the other is 
What makes a difference is if you go to mysuncast.com because you want to see their show notes where you can learn more about their company, follow up some links, uh, the press release for the 30 million investment from Walson. If you're if you're curious about that, like just stuff that I pulled up in my interview research, getting ready to, to speak with Mike, that's all over there. But you'll also see a link for our listener survey. And that's how we get to know you better and know how to serve you more completely. I am always on a mission to build a better product out of Suncast. And I'm super grateful for the hundreds of folks that have filled out our listener survey through the years and given us exactly the kind of insight that continues to evolve. Why we are now starting with the first 15 minutes really focused on this this entrepreneur's business now and why it matters to you, why you should keep listening. It's an evolution of, uh, of listening to you, the listener. I'm so grateful that you've stuck it out this long. How can I help you? Feel free, reach out. If you go to the website, you could see um, work with Nico. You click on that, you get a free clarity call with me if you're interested in that. But it's all there at mysuncast.com. And if you're interested in other uh, resources that we're bringing to bear, well, we've got a place for that too. It's called Resource Labs, www.resourcelabs.co. And that's where our podcast network lives, of which we have Suncast, Climate Avengers, and now Earthlings. If you have, uh, if you're not familiar, my friend Lisa Ann has the Earthlings podcast, which is now part of our Resource Labs network and more to come. Thank you truly for taking the time to lean in with us and learn and grow with us here on Suncast. It makes such a difference. And thanks also to our sponsors who help keep bringing this free content to you. So the only thing you have to invest is your time. Can't do it without them. Can't do it without with you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com. Click on the sponsor link and there's some other goodies there for you if you are interested. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.